Welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads for a refreshing pause and a bit of reflection. My name is Brandon, and I'm really glad you're here. I invite you to join me and my friends, Matt and Peter, for a friendly back porch conversation about prayer, Christian spirituality, faithful theology, and much more. So pull up a chair, grab a drink, and get comfortable as we start today's show. And when we're done, don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org to find out more about all that our ministry offers. Welcome, everybody, to the back porch. I have with me today my uh, regular cast of co-hosts for the first time in a while. I have Matt and Peter. Hey, guys. Hey, Matt. How are you? Doing good, guys. Good to see y'all. Yeah. Peter, good to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. Great to be here. Yeah. Well, it's kind of fun to have the gang back together on the back porch. Hopefully, you have something good to drink. I have a nice, refreshing water in a coke bottle that i refilled because that's what i have does that taste better from a coke bottle <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> i wish <laughs> but today we we wanted to revisit a topic and i'm excited about this we wanted to revisit the three hardest things to say partly because it's a funny joke so i'm sorry three hardest things to say in the english language are i'm sorry i need help and whoosh just worcester sauce i don't know how to say that one worse just sauce Worst, yeah, that one, sure. I still can't say. <laughs> and I think that's a hysterical joke, personally. But last time we did this, we talked about mostly how hard it is to say I'm sorry. And we reflected at the end of that episode that it would be interesting to revisit the idea that it's hard to say I need help. And I honestly, from my perspective, I think that one's actually probably at the root of even saying I'm sorry, what what gets uncovered by admitting that I need help is probably at the root of what, what saying I'm sorry is all about. But let me start this way, just open floor it a little bit. What is your instantaneous responses? What's your gut responses to asking for help? I just see, you know, me at like three years old or any kid really like but you know i can internalize that as me and like what do you think of when you think of a kid and they're trying to do something their parents like oh here honey let me help you and they're like no like they just have this vehement sort of like i do it myself like there's something (laughs) like in that and it's like not a passive sort of like oh no i'd like to i'd really like to do this mom it's like something in our gut just says no I'm going to do this. And like, Mm -hmm. you think I need help? How dare you? It's like, it's offensive. Like there is obvious offense, even at a young age to the idea that, what do you mean? What do you mean? I need help. What do you mean? I can't do this. I, I can't. And let me show Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And normally those, those words are followed up by a clear demonstration of that you can't, which makes it all the more funny to like watch. Actually this morning I was at a coffee shop and there was this kid trying to open the door to, to go and you know and, yeah. and and he could pull the handle but he couldn't get any power to like to get the door open and it was just that classic example of like it's like he didn't want help he didn't want his mom to open the door for him but he he couldn't do it like it was clearly mm. demonstrated he had no ability to do it but he still mm. was like no i am gonna do this don't i don't need yeah. help yeah 
that's what comes to mind right away just those images of childlike obstinance totally well for me the the subject of asking for help it's it's very activating and exposing for me personally because this is one area that i really do struggle with i i have this deep sense whenever i have something in front of me that i need to do and I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do, or I'm failing at it is it's this sense of I've I've already failed. If I have to ask for help, it means one that I've already failed. I'm completely inadequate to handle this thing that's in front of me. And having to ask for help is having to admit that all of those things to another person. I remember an incident a while ago, for some reason, I don't know if you, you know, I, I know that men and women see these things differently because me and my wife have talked about these things at length. But for some reason, when it comes to repairing something at my house, if I don't know what I'm doing or if it doesn't work right immediately, it's an existential crisis. And I, I remember I remember That's... a particular incident with our sprinklers that irrigate our yard. And every time this comes up, it's this existential tread of like, if I fail at this, it means I'm not a real man. I'm not fit to be a homeowner. I'm not fit to be a husband. You're just not fit, period. And we had this incident where I had to repair a leak. It had the, the pipe had parted underground and it was leaking. In my mind, it was a huge problem. And it went like weeks before I was ready to tackle it because I was just afraid of it. And I talked to my friend Kate about it and he's like, oh, that's simple. I'll come help you. And he shows up and it's just like, it's not a thing for him at all. And I, and he like just gets down on his hands and knees and he's elbow deep in the mud in my backyard. And he's just, he's just doing it. And I'm just like, what is it that was so hard about this in the first place? Like, why couldn't I have asked for help? And he could show me what he knows and his and and lend me his strength, lend me his expertise. And the problem was done. And I was expecting it to take all afternoon. It was done in an hour. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's exposing. I have a hard time with it, admittedly. But what I hear you say there is like, it feels like the stakes are so high in these situations that asking for help, it is super penetrating to like the core of our identity. And so it's like terrifying to ask for help because what's at stake is big, which is yeah. relatable. Well, and, yeah. and why is it that, and, and again, this might just be my experience, but why is it that the feeling of needing to ask for help feels so similar to the feeling of needing to repent? Like, is that just mm-hmm. me? Like, is there, am I, am I, cause it's, it does, it feels like a, it feels like having to go to an authority and admit failure. Is that, does that make sense? It, it makes sense to me. I think, well, I think that's part of the reason I'm interested in this particular topic is because when we have to ask for help, even if it's something that's not bad, right? Like I just, I can't open the door. We're faced with our own human limits with our own. We are not in control of everything. We cannot do everything. And honestly, it's a little bit like being faced with the reality that you're going to die someday. (laughs) 
it may be a relatively small thing that you have to ask for help for, but it's kind of a deep existential realization that I can't do everything. Mm-hmm. And then it's even more deeply revealing, I think is the word that you used, Matt. And I think that's really powerful. It's more deeply revealing when what I'm asking for help with is a sin, an addiction, a brokenness that I can't stop. Because that really reveals, I think, something deeply true about the human state that we don't want to look at. I mean, I, I'm not, that's, I say that compassionately. I don't think any of us really want to look and admit the powerlessness we have over ourselves. Yeah, I feel like that's hitting the nail on the the head there. Well, and Brandon, as and I'm not calling you old, but as the kind of the elder here that has had more life experience than Peter or I, only by a few years. But I'm, I guess part of me was wants to know does does it get better with age? Like like as you mature and grow up a little bit, does it get easier or is gonna, it still the same thing? I'm gonna plug my ears real quick while you answer, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he plug your ears because you know what the answer is gonna be, <laughs> which you know of course not, right? It doesn't get any easier. But I have noticed that there are kind of two different kinds of older people. I'm thinking of like, I'm actually thinking of people well into their elderly 80s kind of 90s era. I would I would describe them this way. There are those who are broken and there are those who are obstinate. And it seems like the difference between those people are the ones who have kind of accepted the reality that they're helpless over themselves, over the world over the outcomes, over the end. (laughs) And then there are those who seemingly just want to keep ignoring all of those things. And in my experience, the ones who are broken are a lot happier than the ones who are obstinate, even though that's sort of counterintuitive. One Mm. would think that accepting the reality of my limitation, accepting the fact that I've hurt a lot of people and there's not much I can do about it, accepting that the older I get, the less control I have and the more help I need. That Hmm. seems, you know, those are the things that we're afraid of. Those things will make us very sad, but it doesn't seem as though the people who accept those realities are sadder. They actually seem to be much more content and happy. That's really fascinating, Brandon, because recently I've had some internal reflections going on as I, you know, sort of carry out our ministry in my role as a chaplain, I encounter that dynamic a lot. You know, many of the people that I I, I meet and encounter are in a later season of life, and they're bumping up against the natural limitations that their body is betraying them. It's falling apart. Mm -hmm. And they no longer are free, sometimes to even walk. How limiting is that, you know, just to be so clearly limited by your physical capabilities. And it's not as cut and dry as you know everyone has either their obstinance or they're like broken or something but i i do i relate with that like as i try and listen compassionately and sort of unpack that those are some of the feelings that come up of like those approaches of this 
this can't be happening. You know, like I can't lose my freedom like this and some obstinance and resistance to that. And, and the thought for me in reflection has been, okay, if this is a almost like 99.9% guaranteed part of our life as we age as humans, that we will lose freedom rather than gain freedom and independence. If that is, you know, if that's going to be the end of our, our lifetime, then basically the model of freedom and happiness we've set up in, in this culture is basically saying those last five, 10 years of your life are going to be hell on earth. Sorry. Hmm. I hope you enjoyed your life beforehand because all the things yeah. that we value, independence, freedom, mobility, making decisions for yourself, mm-hmm. those are all going to be gone and it's just going to suck. So buckle up. And it's like, for me, the, the rhetorical thought or question in my mind is like, is there a way of living that would make sense of this season of life in a way that doesn't feel like hell on earth? in a way that still says this is part of my human experience and it's valuable and valid and I can live. I, I don't have to be just wasting away and quote dying with no freedoms with just being limited. So I, I'm not sure if that is all relevant to our conversation here. I know that before we were recording, we were sort of talking about how in the world could this topic of asking for help, recognizing our limits, how is that ever going to be a good thing? Good news. Yeah. Right. How, how does, yeah. How does that help us into a healthy vision of reality? That is good news. That is freeing. And I think that's, that's just been bounced around in my head a lot recently. I do think that's the question that lies at the heart of what we are trying to get at with this is like, how could it ever be good news that the reality of the world is Frankly, we don't really lose all that many freedoms. <laughs> we we sort of have believed we have them when we really don't. You know, there's there's a balance to be said here. There's something to be said for, you know, you go to an extreme and you remove somebody's agency. You take away all control from them. And that's a really abusive and destructive place for somebody to be. And it's proper in that way to restore self-control and agency and independence to people. I think there's, you know, there's a lot to be said in not only in scripture, but just in our experience for even not only individuals, but peoples being disenfranchised, being enslaved, and there being a lot of health in restoring agency and whatever whatever you whatever it means what's the opposite of being disenfranchised being franchised <laughs> so but that i think partly is a topic for another day and is also partly partly the exception that proves the rule it's like we one of the deepest scariest things to come to realize about myself is just how powerless over myself I really am. And I think we spend so much of our time focusing on how do we re-enfranchise ourselves? How do we re how do we give people more command over their lives? How do we give people more independence and freedom and and 
not not needing to depend on anything. We spend so much of our time on that. Again, not that that's bad entirely. Like really, we need to say that it's not totally bad. We're not saying you shouldn't do that. But we spend so much of our time focusing on that, almost like as a way of running away from the existential reality that I am quite powerless over things. So sort of analogous, we kind of culturally spend so much, we we spend an inordinate amount of attention and money on being healthy and living longer. And you can really see that as like a psychological defense against the unalterable fact that we're going to (laughs) die. You know, and that the balanced way of saying this is it's not bad to pursue health. It's not bad to to use technology to extend life, but we do need to recognize that something about our nature, and this is where sin enters the picture, predisposes us to running away from truth. We are going to die. The amount of control and power we have over our lives is very limited, relatively speaking. And to kind of bring this back to the point, ironically, one of the ways that we're twisted is that we pursue happiness by saying, how can I get more control, more freedom, more independence? And we just like run down that road until it's like happiness would be total independence, total freedom, total autonomy. And in reality, that butts up against nature and ourselves and our own brokenness and makes us much, much sadder in the long run because I thought I could do it, but you can't. Well, and I think that I think there's a lot of great examples in media and movie and TV that kind of say are our characters that that exemplify that. You know, I, I I can't help but go to Chris Traeger in Parks and Rec, who is a fitness nut, and the moment he gets the flu, it's an existential crisis. He's just like. I failed. I failed at my goal to live to 120 or whatever. He's he's dying, you know. But then there's the other one of the 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 guy from Chariots of Fire, his his competitor. And I don't remember the name because it's been so long since I've seen the movie, but his whole thing was being an Olympic gold medalist. And even if he gets it, it's not enough. It's not enough to validate his existence. Yeah. Here's the temptation I sense that comes from a conversation like this. At least I feel this temptation of, okay, so the way everybody's doing it is wrong, right? And if and the right way to do it is this other way that if you then will be happy. And it's like I, I want to say something like there's a more compassionate way to approach this. It'd be really easy to sit here and spend an hour diagnosing what's wrong with culture and how we've how we've got our sights set on the wrong thing and how we want too much and how we are trying to be etc 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 which would leave us and I think our listeners in a worse place rather than a better place at the end of the conversation because where we'd end up is just despair critique and anger everybody's doing it wrong I'd rather say something like all of those diagnoses of the way this, the ways that we kind of pursue happiness incorrectly are opportunities for compassion on us as broken human beings who desire joy, desire security, desire health, 
but are stuck in a in a world that is that that in which that is impossible and are stuck within ourselves and ourselves are limited conflicted sinful self-centered and i like the opportunity here is just for some compassion to say man alive we want these things but they're impossible for us to get in this world and rather than aren't people stupid for trying to get it the response is something like that's really hard and i feel your pain <laughs> you know to to look at the health nut who for me given my lifestyle i'm very tempted to just want to be angry at and and like make myself feel better by saying ah the health nut well they're pursuing a stupid way of life <laughs> that's honestly confession that's actually just me self justifying that i can't do that I, I do mm -hmm. not have the willpower. Mm -hmm. And so I cut them down. I'd rather have the response, which I don't easily have, of that person is pursuing the exact same thing I'm pursuing, which is a sense of value, a sense of worth, a sense of health and safety. They're, they're pursuing it in a different way, but their way is just as futile as mine. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, And we both have that commonality. We want the same thing, pursuing it in different ways, and both of our ways are going to fail. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. It's like we have the opportunity, I feel like as Christians, with an understanding of, you know, the doctrine of sin and brokenness, it, you know, we so easily can go into that, you're doing it wrong, and we don't do it wrong that way, rather than leveling the playing field and finding the common ground of like, Listen, the reason that we so desperately need Jesus is because, yeah, we we get that internal struggle of we're all trying to find the good life, the good news that's within our power to grasp and control, to be able to relate to somebody who is trying to find that and say, like, yes, I understand why you would want that, who doesn't want to be happy and fulfilled and, and have meaning in their life and to speak and compassionately rather than, I can't believe you would do that. I don't I think there is like there is compassion and there is like grace in that rather than it being judgment or well I think I think the doctrine the the Christian biblical emphasis on the reality of sin is in its fullness meant to be a teaching of compassion not a teaching of damnation what I mean by that is the 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 very consistent any and and quite a there, you know, the Bible probably talks about sin more than any other topic in some form or another, but it's meant to be a a relieving doctrine, a a compassionate, comforting doctrine. It's like it's like the diagnosis that says you're you're trying really futilely to be happy in this world and it's not working. Yeah, man, here's why you're living in a tragedy and things are not going to work out. And you are a tragedy. You are the kind of thing that can't help but make things worse for yourself and for others. And that by no means excuses the bad that you're doing. 
But it is meant to be, I believe, a compassionate statement, which is to say, there's a really compassionate way to say, give up hope. (laughs) Right? I am thrashing around in the ocean, trying to keep myself afloat in the middle of the ocean. And the boat comes along and throws the life preserver. (laughs) And, you know, just bear with me for a moment. I'm not making a direct analogy to correct doctrine of sin. I'm just, here's the way of saying give up hope is a compassionate thing. And I insist I am going to beat the ocean by, by treading water and finding shore. And the boat's like, dude, you are a million miles from anything. You're going to die. Give up hope. Grab the life preserver. <laughs> and ask for help. And if I just keep insisting, I don't want help. I don't want help. I'm going to do this on my own. It's really compassionate to, to, to explain to me, my friend, the closest land is a thousand miles. There are sharks everywhere around you. Stop fighting. Give up hope. Hmm. It sounds to the person who is so committed to the self-delusion that I can do it on my own. It sounds like damnation. Like, like it sounds like, um, see, even the word damnation, right? I think the reason we hear that as negative is because what we what we're actually talking about is like not just damnation, but scoffing. What's the word when somebody thinks you're you're worthless? Ridicule. Yeah. It's it'd be like the it's like the person in the water thrashing around. And the person on the boat throws the life vest and says, give up hope. And the person in the water says, well, you think I'm, you think I'm just worthless, don't you? You you think I'm, you're just trying to show me that you think you're better than me. And the guy in the boat's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> That's yeah. not what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm just saying that if you don't grab the life vest, you're going to die and the sharks are going to get you. And we insist on projecting into that person's mouth. Well, you're saying, mm. I'm useless and worthless. And he's like, no, I'm just saying you can't beat the ocean. Hey there, back porchers. I hope you're enjoying the show. Is your pastor tired? It's often those who serve the most who have the hardest time resting and being served. So we at Signpost N have created a specific contemplative prayer retreat for pastors and ministry leaders and their spouses so that they can find rest for their bodies and souls. We invite you to come away for a while with us, slow down, and breathe. We know how hard it is to always be on. So this retreat is exclusive to pastors and other ministry leaders and their spouses. It will refresh your perspective on God and yourself, and you'll have an opportunity to recover the vitality of your relationship with Him. This retreat is August 23 through 26, and it's located in West Cliff, Colorado at our beautiful mountain lodge that sits at 9,000 feet and overlooks the beautiful Sangre de Cristo mountain range. Space is very limited, however, so if you're interested, please visit signpostin.org events to register. Of course, it's not only pastors and ministry leaders that get burnt out. You need time to get away, to learn to keep your heart open and alert the presence of God and His Word. Please come and join us for a weekend of silence and solitude and good food and friendship where you can reconnect with God. This retreat is September 14th through 17th, and you can sign up at the same place, signpostin.org 
slash events. And now back to the show. Uh, I, I have found this, and like this is, this analogy is fitting so well, but like we talk about God's word, his revelation, his judgments, what he says as light, you know, God's word is a light onto our path. Mm-hmm. And so I had this image in a sermon once where we can perceive God's light, it, it, what it reveals on our life to be like a like searchlight, like imagine a fugitive running from the law. And so the light of God's truth shines on us and we, we, you know, we duck and we, we go, no, no. And just like that person might be in the water, you know, if they think the person there is like out to get them and it's like, give up hope, we've got you. And it, they're like, no, I'm not. they're not going to relent and, and submit and, and be taken in by them because they think that would be death, that these people are mm-hmm. out to get me mm-hmm. versus understanding that light as the, the searchlight of a rescue team looking desperately for a lost and endangered person. And if, and if we as limited human beings, sinful human beings are able to flip that just for a moment and see ourselves, not as only a fugitive who has done wrong things, who needs to hide from God, but as a sick and desperately needy person who has Mm -hmm. so many limitations and that God might be compassionately seeking us out and saying, yeah, give up hope. I, I've come to I've come to give you hope. Stop running from me. I've I've got you. And like I don't know. Just semantics is so interesting in tone because even that word I've got you could be like ah I've got you. Yeah, like right. it's antagonist or I've got you can be so compassionate. Like some he wants right. to hold you and take care of you. And the yeah the I think that's what I'm trying to articulate. Exactly right. Like the I've got you is such a great example of this. The true doctrine. The true teaching around sin, as I said, is meant to be con- compassionate. God knows that we are trapped in our own selves. We are trapped in our own insistence on s- independence and self-control that we can't even hear his words the way he means them. We hear them like, I have got you now, and now I'm going to really make you pay. And what he actually is saying is, I've got you, I'm holding on to you, I'm going to save you because I love you. But that also tells us, I think, Peter, the way the word sin has been misused so much, because there is a way I think it's been taught as, as if what it is is the message that you really, really suck, and you are you are worthless unlovable piece of and that's even taught as like that's the pious good and right thing to say i'm more holy if i say yes i am a piece of crap i am worthless you know and that is even taught as if saying that is somehow glorifying to god and all I, I guess what I would want to say is there's a way one can admit one's relative worthlessness in humility, one's relative helplessness in humility that sounds an awful lot. I mean, we have scriptural precedent, you know, I am a worm, <laughs> chief of sinners, I am. But there's a way of saying that that isn't, this is the this is what I really am. I should feel this way that as, 
I'm struggling to articulate this. When it's I suck, period, I'm worthless, period, not I need help, it's actually kind of the reverse. It's a kind of pride. It's like, I am, look at me, I'm so bad. <laughs> you know, it, it takes God to save me, which it does, but it's like, man, I'm, look how bad I am. But then there's another way to say it, which is, I just need help. And I can ask for help because I'm valuable in God's eyes. God wants to help me. That may be a rabbit trail. I don't know if we went down the wrong, wrong trail, but that's a hard thing to articulate. Well, I, I, for me, tell me if this is where you were going with this, because at, as, you're, as you're saying that, the thing that I went to is the sort of, and, and I know different denominations talk about this in different ways, but there is the, the salvation of being saved from our sins that happens as a result of accepting Christ's death on the cross for you personally. But then there's also this sense of we are continually being saved day by day. We continually rely on grace through a process of, you know, sanctification. But it's, I don't know, am I am I getting where you're going right on that? I mean, I hadn't thought that direction. I don't know if that's the direction that may, it, that may make sense to go that way. I think what I was trying to get at is that the... There's a way of using the category, the correct category of sin to beat people over the head sort of incessantly and never give any hope. It's like there's no compassion in it. It's like you're a sinner, idiot. Can't you see it? You idiot. <laughs> mm. Like that's there's and I think a lot of us have have encountered that kind of teaching, whether it, whether the people did it on purpose or not is kind of irrelevant. And so we. We want to run away from the idea that we're sinners, that we're we're in this helpless state that we can't fix because it's been used to beat us over the head. And mm. it's been told to us, and this I think this is what I was trying to get at. It's been told to us in such a way that the implication is, if I could just admit it enough, I'd beat it. If I could just think I'm really bad enough, then I'd get out of it. It's almost like, you know, the category of sin is used to beat me up, but it's also implied that if I were smart enough, good enough, mm. humble enough, I'd, I'd be able to fix it. Hmm. Right. Cause the message is, so you have so gone out of the boundaries. It's all your fault. It's this crushing weight of your faultness and you've done it all. And so there's almost this way that we kind of, it's like, well, if it's all my fault, then it's all in my power. And, it, mm -hmm. and, and I'm doubly damned because it's all in my power and I've done it anyway, but, but it is in my power still. Like right. there's like, this, yes, I am. I am a horrible person for everything I've done. And, and I could have made different decisions and yet I haven't. And man, I need God because I, uh -huh. I, I haven't made the right decisions, but I could. And, and so it's like this. Uh -huh. False hope. It's it's false hope that makes us feel twice as bad and doesn't give us yeah. any actionable steps forward. Or or it's I am such a horrible sinner, and the way I am in still in control is by being able to admit that more than anybody else, right? Which puts you in a double bind as well. Like the way out of of the problem is to say there is no way out. <laughs> more and more and more. Okay, mm. I think this could be a little more practical this way. 
we we brought this up before we started recording too, and I think it really fits here. The the twelve step program of the Alcoholics Anonymous. There's something really powerful, and Peter, Matt, Peter, and I were talking about this the other day. It'd be fun to have like a twelve steps for normal people, <laughs> like because while while they while they're very important for addicts. The principles behind them are just principles for all sinners, for all people broken and unable to help themselves, which is all of us. But the first three steps in particular kind of speak to this issue, which is the first one is just to admit your powerlessness. My life has become unmanageable. I am powerless over this addiction. I can't stop. Second step is to come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, that God could restore us to sanity. To And then three to make the decision to turn our wills and our lives over to the care of God. And the thing is that like all three of those things are kind of one move in some sense, even though you can break them out and kind of think about them separately, but they're kind of one move because you can only really admit your powerlessness. You can only really say, I can't do this on my own. I need help. If there is somebody out there to help you who likes you and will, and will help you for your sake, for your good. And you can only really do that, <laughs> or, or let me put it this way, in doing that, you are turning your will and your life over to that person. You're just saying, it's the internal movement of like, well, I can't stop. I can't get myself out of this brokenness. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I keep doing things I don't want to do, and I don't do things I do want to do, and no amount of willpower ever fixes it. No amount of right thinking fixes it. I can say I'm horrible till I'm blue in the face, and I still can't fix it. Uh, throw my hands up. All right, Lord. And it's a there's a sense in which that's a leap of faith. You just sort of leap off into God and say, well, everything I have ever tried has turned out bad. So I guess you got to do it now. And I think that's where the compassion and the good, you know, full circle. I think that's the folks I know who have given up, who've given up hope, who are broken, are a lot happier than those who are still obstinately holding on because they found help. I mean, here's like, here's what I mean by the, look, the, the teaching of sin is really good news when it's taught this way. Because it actually is saying there is hope. There is a way. God will do it. <laughs> there is an answer. You you can be happy. <laughs> you can find safety and peace and joy. It does exist. Yes, that, that makes so much sense. And I feel like in moments where I have, well, you, we're talking about the specific 12-step context right now. And I've engaged with groups that have used that and, and done different things with the 12 steps. And I always find that introductory sort of season where you're just in step one to be like, this feel like, I don't know, when we're just focusing on that, it feels really bad. It, like nobody, nobody ever wants to admit sin and powerlessness if, if mm -hmm. nobody's offering a solution. Why would mm -hmm. you do that? But I like what you were saying, Brandon, about that being like one move together. Like, and, and ideally that in our presentation of this reality as Christians, we're not just saying you're stuck in sin. Hey, see you next Sunday. <laughs> like, what? What? Ah! like, you know, like we need that, that whatever you want to call it, law or just truth. We need that dose of reality, but 
what is also part of reality is that there is a way God is providing. God is sufficient. He is a saving, compassionate, generous God. The end of the story isn't you're a sinner and that sucks for you. And the pressure's off. Right. Like the mm. pressure's off, man. Like there is a way to happiness, health, and and safety and security and all the things that you desire. And you don't have to do anything to get it. The magic of the 12-step insight is that like fundamental to understanding, I think, kind of any repetitive, addictive kind of behavior is that the the behavior itself isn't really the problem. It's all the it's the escape. And and the big book talks about this and all all wise programs that deal with behavior that people can't stop. The behavior isn't the problem. There's an underlying problem. And the behavior is usually the coping mechanism, the the escape from the pressure that the other problem is causing. And giving up, quote unquote, hope that I can stop this is actually the solution because <laughs> the pressure goes away. Somebody else is going to do it. I don't have to. And then there's a space for moving away from whatever the, the behavior is because the, the behavior loses its power. It's it doesn't you don't need it. I do want to backtrack one and one step and just comment briefly on the on the word sin itself and I think this is a good place to do it. One of the problems that happens in the conversation about sin is the word is so used, so familiar, we forget that it doesn't actually primarily in its first and most important definition refer to actions and behaviors. It, it It's actually, it refers to the condition that we've been talking about this whole time of being twisted and unable to do good. Biblically, sin much more often refers to, in a sense, the, the root that causes the behaviors, not the behaviors themselves. And we always get focused on the behaviors. I'm reading the book Low Anthropology by David Zoll, and his one of his analogies for this is sin is a condition. It's it's like a magnetic field through which things pass and get warped. Hmm. So our intentions, our motivations, our desires, our actions pass through this field and get warped, all of them. That's what sin really means. And it's really hard to remember that and keep that in your mind as you as we're doing all this conversation. But that's the good news. The good news is right now in this context, after the fall, everything we do is tainted and twisted and changed and not directed towards good. And that that's bad news in one way, but it's really great news in another way, which is the pressure's off, man. You don't have to fix it. Because any efforts you do to try to fix it are going to go through the same field anyway and get twisted. So that's okay. <laughs> doesn't excuse your behavior. Let's be clear. It doesn't mean that when you do hurt somebody, that it, that's an excuse. Not at all. But the pressure's off to have to fix it all by yourself. How's that landing with you, Matt? Well, everything y'all were just saying for the last for the, for the last ten minutes really did kind of land the plane for me there because, yeah, it it is bad news to say you're broken and sinful and there's nothing in your power that you can do about it. That's bad news unless it's followed with, but there's somebody that can redeem that all of it completely and that there is somebody who's going to 
be there to help you. That's when it does become good news. And you sort of get this idea of like, well, it is 100% natural in humans to deny, defend, evade, cast blame, protect yourself against any fault that could be found within us, you know, or any failure. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, admitting that you've messed up, like, why would you ever do that? Mm-hmm. Unless you knew it was safe to do so, unless you knew like, oh, well, in admitting I'm wrong or admitting I need help, I will find the help and it will no longer be, it, it, it turns failure into victory. It turns failure into success. I, I think my new favorite saying, I don't know where I've heard it, but I think my new favorite thing is, is the best thing about admitting you're wrong or admitting that you failed is that you no longer have to fight a losing battle, which is exactly. defending yourself and denying <laughs> your failure. Phrase has been with me for a couple of months now. It's like, yeah, the best thing about admitting you're wrong is that you don't have to fight a losing battle anymore of defending mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. And one of the things that, one of the fruits of this, as anybody who's done the kind of soul work required in therapy, in a 12-step program, in going through the forgiveness and reconciliation process, anybody that's done any of those would know the fruit of what you're saying, Matt, what we've been talking about this whole way through. One of them is it really breeds compassion and it breeds the kind of humility required to restore unity in a broken world because I can look honestly at others more readily now and be like, yeah, you are really broken too. You're doing a lot of hurtful, evil things too. And you're fighting a losing, the same losing battle that I'm fighting. You may be fighting it in a different way. You may be fighting it in a way that I think is just really stupid. Hmm. But my way was no more smart. <laughs> hmm. And there's a commonality across all the divisions, which is we're all stuck in this plight of fighting a losing battle. And that, and I get it. And there is a different way out. That's good news. Yeah. What you said at, at the beginning, Matt, I can't remember if we were recording at this point, but the phrase, you know, sort of chief of sinners and yeah. kind of what that, like, I, I, I almost internalize that, right? Chief is like a synonymous kind of with leader. So like, you know, or the foremost, you know, but the leader of sinners and it was like, okay, so once we've got this realistic view that all of us are sinners, all of us are limited and have distorted desires and things, how would we, how would we lead in a way that breeds that compassion and like, almost like it would be a title that you would want to adopt. Like I am the chief of sinners. Let me show you how to deal with this or like let me show you like here like let's not hide it let's talk about it let's be open like i don't know it was just an interesting i know that's not how paul meant it he was more saying i'm the prime i'm the foremost of of sinners but it's like almost if i internalize that for myself of like all right i'm a sinner we're in our sin how do i lead well i lead by giving a dose of reality of saying yeah i relate to this i can understand this this makes a whole lot of sense and let's go to jesus for help and healing and forgiveness i don't that didn't come out very eloquently or at all but i don't know there's something about you guys are just talking about the compassion 
that it can breed. And I think there's a way in which we can lead with that compassion and reality that is super helpful to those around us. Well, and I think you're, I think you're exactly right because that passage in scripture comes in from Paul in first Timothy. And what you're saying is I think exactly what we can take away from there is that here is a mentor to Timothy who's saying this saying deserves full acceptance that Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. And he's telling this to a person that he's put in charge in leadership over a group of other sinners. And he's, and he's saying, Hey, as your spiritual mentor, I'm telling you admitting that you're the chief of sinners is a good thing. And it's going to actually help you in leading the and and loving these other sinners that you're now responsible for. Yeah, I think we can I think we can wrap this up at this point. I want to leave with a quote that I read recently that's attributed to Chesterton. I didn't do the work to find out if he actually said it or not, but attributed to GK Chesterton. And it's comparing the what he calls the secular optimist versus the Christian and how they look at the world and the problems that we're talking about. So how they look at the plight we're all in. And the quote says that the secular optimist looks at the world and says, it's really serious, but not hopeless. Things are really bad, but we can fix them. And the Christian looks at the world and says, things are totally hopeless, but not serious. Hmm. And I think it's really helpful to realize that we're not going to fix this world. We're not even going to fix ourselves. It's totally hopeless to try for that. But that's not a serious problem because <laughs> God has got it and he's working it and it's going to be fine is a much more freeing, relieving, compassionate, and, and I think even unity creating kind of way of looking at the world. Yeah. Listeners, thanks for being with us on the back porch this time around. We hope that this has been at least thought provoking, but I do think even more than that, we pray that it's been relieving to you that perhaps you can find a little bit of comfort <laughs> in being helpless. Matt, Peter, thanks for being here with me. It's been good. And listeners, we'll see you next time. In the meantime, may the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Signpost In, a nonprofit Christian ministry dedicated to helping people connect with God and find direction. We offer spiritual direction, retreats, and lots of other resources like this podcast. Please visit us at signpostin.org to learn more. We especially want to thank our generous donors who support our work and keep this podcast going. If you've benefited from something you've heard on this show, please consider supporting us by making a tax-deductible gift at signpostin.org donate. That's signpostin.org donate. And thank you.